we have arrived here at this vow session because we want our life to matter. We want our life to matter, and that's why we make vows. Alan Watts talked about humans as tubes, tubes with holes at each end. You put food in the top hole, and it comes out the bottom hole. And in the middle, the tube wiggles and tries to entice someone to mate with us. And then we decorate the middle of the tube, and we try to entice someone to mate with us. And maybe we do mate, and we birth more tubes. And we try very hard to keep our tube from deteriorating, but we didn't take such great care of it. And it, inter it deteriorates anyway, and eventually the tube falls apart. That's one way of looking at our life. Maybe we learned something in that interval between our tube getting born and disintegrating. Maybe we got a little bit wiser and more compassionate. But when the tube dies, all of that dies with it. So the new tubes have to start all over. And they didn't think the older tubes knew anything. So they stopped listening to the older tubes ages ago. And the young tubes don't like reading about something as boring as history. So they have to make all the same mistakes all over again. It's a very inefficient system for getting anywhere in the world. We're making progress in this world of difficulties. We're making progress on the wisdom and compassion scale of things. It's a very inefficient system. We don't want to arrive at the end of the life of our tube and look back and think, wow, my tube was starting to fall apart while I wasn't even looking. How did I get here so fast? How did I arrive at the door of death so fast? Why did I spend my entire life just trying to make myself comfortable and trying to entertain myself? Why didn't I accomplish anything meaningful? Why didn't I accomplish anything to help alleviate the suffering in this world? Unless we stop to think about it, this can happen. If you talk with hospice workers, they say that the saddest thing is to be with someone who's dying with regrets. Vows can help us channel our life energy so we can arrive at death with a sense of having done some good in the world, some good in the world. Maybe we taught children to learn or to believe in themselves or we relieved people's physical or emotional pain to a certain degree. Or maybe we gave food to the hungry. It doesn't have to be complicated. We don't have to 
get a PhD in philosophy to figure it out, the Buddha said that we should just give the basics. Just give the basics. Food to people who are hungry. Give food. Give clean water to drink and wash. And of course, around the world, many people don't have that. To give shelter. Habitat for humanity. Many ways to do that. To give light. Kind of take that for granted, but people do have problems with that even in this modern world. In the Buddhist time, of course, light was not so easy to come by for people, if you, especially if you were poor. Maybe you could get a little flickering oil lamp. And the cold climate, light and warmth go together. So maybe we give money to programs that help people pay their electric bills. To give medicine and to give transportation. And he also added to give flowers, which is representative of beauty, to give beauty to people. These are, we could pick any one of these and spend our lifetime just working in that realm. We could work for rapid transit, inexpensive transportation for people so they can get to their work, so that we clean up the environment because people don't have to drive cars two miles and then find a parking spot, which costs money. It's not difficult. If you look at inspiring YouTubes, often they're very, very simple. Like, um, I saw one on a, a pizza parlor that was founded by a guy who got tired of being in the tech world decided he wanted to do something concrete to help people. So he found he, he liked to cook, he liked pizza, so he opened a pizza parlor. And then um, someone came in and said, well, I'd like to give a dollar uh, so you can have a piece of pizza for a homeless person. And so he started a program where you could <clears throat> pay an extra dollar for your pizza, and then there'd be a slice of pizza for a homeless person. And so they serve hundreds of pieces of pizza to homeless people. And they have a bulletin board where you can write down, you know, that you, st that you po a little post-it you can put up that you gave a dollar for pizza for a homeless person. A homeless person can come in, take that post-it and hand it in and get a slice of hot pizza. And they interviewed homeless people who said this was the high point of their day to know that they could come in and get something hot and fresh and healthy to eat. Pay it forward. Many examples of pay it forward. We have a backpack program here in town for children who don't have food on the weekends and in Klatskanai and also downtown in Portland. So 
were related to a school in near nearby in nearby Heart of Wisdom, and we give food for children who don't have enough to eat on the weekends. And one of our members said, I'll take this on. I'll take this program on. And then they talk about it. It inspires all of us, and we bring food. We have extra food. You know, we can spend an extra dollar or five dollars when we go shopping and bring food. So one of our members took this on and inspired all of us, told us about it, educated us about it, and we joined. The power of vows that they inspire other people, and it's not just one person's vow anymore, but many people's vows taken up. Vows multiply. Vows have a way of multiplying. So we work with vows because we want our life to matter. In the scale of time, our life, even of human history, our life is just a tiny, tiny flicker. But still we want it to matter that we were here, that we lived, that we existed, that we felt, that we loved, that we cared. We also work with vows because we can't be passive about our life. We have to take active vows. If we're passive, then we're subject to Brownian movement, which in physics is the random, apparently random movement of molecules in a solution when they're hit by other molecules and the collisions that happen, and they bounce off like pool balls. except pool balls that aren't aimed by somebody trying to get it into, the, into a pocket. Hmm? Aiming implies vow. If we're passive about our life, then if we get hit by someone who has a higher energy and a stronger purpose, like a drug dealer or an abusive partner or someone with a passion for shoplifting or someone even with a passion for our body, then we can easily be knocked off course. As Hogan says, you can get pregnant without knowing it's happening. And then you can't go to college, and then you can't get the degree. You can't be the first in your family to go to college and get a degree and inspire others in your family or other, other people to go to college and so on. So if we're knocked off course by someone with a stronger energy, our life will take a fork in the road that might be irreversible. The further down the fork we go, the harder it is to jump over to another pathway. Or we might be lucky and encounter someone with a higher energy and stronger purpose for good. The vows, you, people can take vows to harm. That, of course that happens. So we're not talking about that category of vows. We're talking about vows with a strong purpose for good. So we might encounter someone who inspires us to take a beneficial direction in life, or we might be the inspiration without ever knowing it. If our life is directed by wholesome vows, vows with a good purpose, we might inspire somebody and never know it. 
there's a beautiful story about John Kabat-Zinn, who was a graduate student in Rochester and saw on the bulletin board in the graduate school a, a poster that said there was going to be a talk by a Zen Roshi. And he thought, well, that might be interesting. So he went to it, and in, according to the story, it was Kaplo Roshi, who was Hogan's first teacher. And there was a big room you know, for him to lecture in, and there were two or three people there. I don't remember if it was two or three. One of them was John Kabat-Zinn, and I think it was two. Um, and Roshi Kaplow, because of his strong vow, just gave his talk about Zen. And John Kabat-Zinn was so inspired by the meditation and by Roshi's talk that he decided to make this his life. And so you have the work that he did showing that mindfulness meditation can benefit people in innumerable ways, even just their physical health in innumerable, innumerable ways, and founded the institute at the University of Massachusetts. And now there are teachers in this room who are the result of that vow. Of Kaplaroshi's vow, which he carried out no matter what the conditions were, even if it looked a little discouraging. And then John Kabat-Zinn catches fire, and his vow grows to a movement that's all over the world, thousands and thousands of people. I do my uh, training for professionals in mindful eating in Europe, and discovered that the mindfulness-based stress reduction movement in Europe is huge. They've seized it and have run with it. And it's a prerequisite for training in our mindful eating program. But in Europe, that's not hard because so many people have been so inspired and have taken MBSR training. So here's what's very interesting is Kaplow Roshi doesn't didn't ever know that this happened. So you may never know who you will inspire and what will result. All we know is we take a vow and we work to carry out that vow. If we have a strong, clear vow, if we become confused or knocked off course, the vow can reorient us. A vow serves like an internal GPS system. I love GPS systems, not just because they help you get there. And I can't remember, you know, all those years when we didn't have them, how we found our way places and how we found somebody in the grocery store even. Somehow we managed. <laughs> Or we just stood outside school. I remember standing outside school after an event and just waiting for my dad to come. You know, eventually he'd come, drive around the school and find out where we were. It happened, you know, it worked. But the reason I love GPS systems is because they never get upset. They don't make judgments, right? They, they say, go right at the next stoplight. And then you, oh, I missed the stoplight. I wasn't paying attention. I was listening to the radio. Oh. But it doesn't make a fuss. It just reorients. It just reorients. 
It doesn't say, you stupid idiot. I told you, turn at the stoplight. It just says, proceed to the next intersection and turn right. So that's what a vow does. A vow or it reorients us when we wander off course, which we're human beings, we will do. And we go, oh, yeah. I got off course. I was wandering off course. What's my vow? And vows actually can help us moment to moment, too. You know, we're doing this environmental awareness a month at Heart of Wisdom. And first, we're educating ourselves, because there's a lot to learn about that we don't know about the environment and what affects the environment. And then we're going to make vows, personal vows, about what we will individually do to help in this climate, climate crisis, environmental crisis. But you realize that it's, you know, we have, oh, I have a big vow. This is my vow. I'm going to save the earth. Great. But how are you going to do it? That's where the vow becomes minute, really minute. So I constantly catch myself because I have uh, my New Year's vow is I will not accept a bag in the store. But I'm always forgetting to take the bags in, or I think, oh, I'll just get one thing, and then I get ten, and I can't carry them all in my hands. So I have to carry this vow out in, in the minute details of leaving a bag on, my, on the seat next to me or hook it around on my arm when I'm driving. I don't know what it's going to take because I'm mindless about this and I have to bring it into my awareness and really be determined about it. Vows take determination. Even a simple vow. Or I, you know, I... I We'll walk by some trash here or anywhere. And then my vow arises and says, this is what, when I'm being severe with myself, I, I call myself Bayes internally. It says, Bayes, you just walk by that trash. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Go back and pick it up. Okay. okay. That's how vows work. They remind us, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. The vow reminds us of the vow. We make vows because vows are the fabric of our life already. Already. Vows are woven into our life. Anything you have ever learned, anything you've ever accomplished is the fruit of a vow. If you learn to play piano, if you finished a term paper, if you go running, if you called your parents when you didn't particularly feel like it or you had something else you wanted to do with that time, or you went to a weekly yoga class, or you gave money to a cause that wouldn't benefit you, anytime you were tempted to do something unhealthy and unskillful but you didn't do it, all these indicate that your life is woven of vows. So vows are not a strange concept that we invented here at Great Vows and Monastery. Vows are your life. Even when you do pick up trash or you pick up someone else's mug that's sitting some random place in the monastery or you return a shopping cart to the metal cage instead of leaving it between the cars. These actions are evidence of underlying vows. 
you're not a stranger to vows. Many of your vows are hidden in your semi-conscious actions. You don't even recognize them. In this retreat, we make vows conscious and visible because making them conscious and visible enables them to be supported and strengthened and even multiplied. When we make a conscious vow, we also ask for help in carrying out that vow. So that's part of saying your vows. And we recommend after you've made vows that you start by saying them every morning before you begin formal practice. And I find that whenever I, when my mind gets fuzzy and I feel like I'm getting off course, if I, if I go back to saying my vows every morning for a while, it just sharpens everything up. It works that way. So when we make a conscious vow, we also ask for help in carrying out that vow. And we recognize that many obstacles will arise. In fact, we expect that to happen if we have a strong vow. Obstacles will arise. The vow will be tested. A vow will test us and grow us. Maybe you have a vow to help others by becoming a therapist. So we had a student who was here who was very inspired by a counselor who helped them and has decided to become a counselor. So you picture yourself behind a desk, so serene, because you practice, and a client saying how grateful they are because you've turned their life around. And you picture yourself, how good you feel. So you go to graduate school, and you start working in a community mental health clinic with people who are addicted and homeless and mentally ill and mad at you because the judge ordered them into treatment. And they don't feel better after the first session. So they have an attitude. Okay, this is a test. Were you serious about your vow? Do you really mean it? And most important, you thought you'd help grow healthy people, but are you willing to have the vow grow you? Grow a healthier, a wiser, and a more compassionate you? If we take a vow, it will test us. It's part of the vow. When we make a vow and we ask for help, we're creating a kind of vacuum We're pulling back our opinions, our ideas, our way of doing things. When we create that vacuum, all sorts of support and inspiration and sustenance can move towards us. Assistance from unexpected sources. This monastery is a great example. We were at Larch Mountain for 10 years. We wanted to grow. Our programs were growing. We had a small residential program. We were having session. And then we were blocked because it became part of the scenic 
preserve, the Gorge Scenic Preserve. And we tried to get around that block, and we couldn't get around that block through government procedures. And then we began looking, and we couldn't find a place. And we thought, well, maybe it shouldn't be a rural place. Maybe it needs to be a place uh, in the city. And so we looked in the city, and we couldn't find a place in the city, and it just seemed hopeless. And just about the time I gave up, Hogan came out to this obscure little place in Klaskenai and found our monastery. This place appeared, but if you look at how that happened, it's pretty amazing. So in the 1970s, when this building was built and became a school, in the 1970s, Hogan and I were just beginning practice. He was up in Rochester, and I was over here on the West Coast. We were just beginning practice, and we went through all of the things we went through in our own centers, in our own life, and children, and marriages, and divorces, and blah, 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 blah. And and he moved to the West Coast, and then he came to ZCLA. And so time passes. We watch time pass. And this school, the life of this school, passes through time, too. Became a favorite school. People tell us how much they loved going here, sending their kids here. And then there were changes in the financial fortunes of the county and the school district, and the number of kids being born here, cause and effect, chain of cause and effect. I moved to Oregon because my sister lives in Oregon. I want to get my kids out of L.A., etc. And then all these trajectories come together. Most of you weren't even born when the trajectory, you younger people weren't born when that trajectory began. And then somehow you arrive here. It's very mysterious. But all the result of a vow, and not just Hogan's vow and my vow, but our teacher's vow. Our teacher's vows, Mizumi Roshi's vows, made when he was 29, before he was even 30. He left, left Japan on a one-way ticket, vowing to establish the roots of Dharma so deeply on American soil that they would not wither and die. Didn't speak English. You think that, what a foolish vow. And yet, there are hundreds of centers around the world now because of that vow, of that foolish young man's vow. And Kapla Roshi, who was a reporter in the Nuremberg trials and was so appalled by what he saw about human cruelty, human capacity for cruelty, ended up practicing in Japan under very, very austere conditions, severe conditions, and then but was so inspired, he brought, he established this little place in a little house in Rochester, New York. And then people began coming. It's the power of vow. So mysterious how it works. We come here to work on vows because vows work outside of our usual understanding of space and time. If they are birthed and supported by our spiritual work, our work on clarifying the heart mind, if we learn to align ourselves and constantly realign ourselves with pure awareness, if we keep on realigning ourselves with pure awareness, with our access portal to the absolute, 
then our vows operate in the realm of that mystery, which is outside space and time. Our vows can work in the realm of the absolute, which is outside our usual understanding of space and time and cause and effect. You have to take that on faith until it begins to happen. So we have many examples. Uh, that my favorite is, well, my two favorites are Dido, my Dharma brother, who established Zen Mountain Monastery. They, he had $250 to his name and a credit card when he agreed to buy Zen Mountain Monastery, which if you haven't seen it, is 200 acres, beautiful old monastery built by Catholic brothers by hand. Beautiful place. But he had a vow, and he had faith. And the first winter, and this is upstate New York, they didn't have enough money to repair the furnace, so they didn't have heat. Way worse than the places we don't have heat in this building, because this is upstate New York in the winter, right? When if you have a cup of water by your bed at night, it freezes, it's frozen by the morning. So, but they just didn't have money, so they couldn't do it. So then somebody came to the door and said, I'd like to come and train here. I'm very inspired by what you're doing. And Dido said, well, what can you do? And the guy said, well, I, I don't think it'll be helpful, but I'm a furnace repairman. <laughs> oh, yeah, come in. <laughs> or Ajahn Amaro's story of they were given this land in Northern California to establish a new Thai forest monastery. And it was adjacent to a Russian Orthodox monastery in, the, in a rural area, kind of a nice location. They were given the land by Master Shen Ying, the Chinese Zen master, Chan master. And so he was sent to be the abbot of this place, so he went to look at it. What was this, this bare piece of land? And in the Thai forest tradition, they practice in little kudis, individual kudis. They come together for joint practice, but around the property of the monastery are small huts where people practice and live on their own. So he's looking at this property and thinking, hmm, okay, where do we start? And somebody drives in, and uh, Ajahn Amaro greets him and, and says, can I help you? And he says, oh, I'm looking for the Russian Orthodox monastery. And he says, oh, well, you have to drive out and drive in that next driveway over there, and you'll find it. And, but the man is curious. He said, what are you doing here? Because Ajahn Amaro is wearing robes. That's why robes are important. They are a sign of a vocation, of a vow. And that can mean something to someone, be a signal to someone, and they can ask questions. They know they can ask questions. They're deep questions. Anyway, this guy said, so what are you doing here? You in your weird orange robe. <laughs> and Ajahn Amar explained the Thai forest tradition that they were going to establish a monastery there and that had come from England and so on, from, from Thailand to England and now to the U.S. And the guy said, well, gosh, I, I, I'm gonna, I do you know, volunteer work over at the Russian Orthodox Monastery, and I, but maybe there's something I can do for you. And, but, I, but probably not. And Ajahn Zamro says, why? And he says, well, my, my skill is building small huts <laughs> for outbuildings, you know, for farms and so on, small little sheds. Ajahn Aron says, great. 
Yeah, I think we could use you. So when we have a vow, which is not just to benefit ourselves, of course vows benefit us and grow us, but when we have a vow which is impelled by our realization of human suffering and our earnest desire to relieve that suffering even in some small way, which might not even appear to be noticed, when that is the fuel for our vow, then we enter that realm which is outside of our usual understanding of cause and effect. We enter that great mystery realm. Vows multiply. We may know that or not know that. I gave the example of Maizumi Roshi. As vows are handed down through lifetimes, and Maizumi Roshi handed me his vow. He, Kabla Roshi handed Roshi his, Hogan Roshi his vow. I call it the prime directive, you know, like in those science fiction movies where you have a chip embedded in you and it keeps giving you this message while our chip keeps saying, do not let the Dharma die out. Do not let the Dharma die out. So we have an obligation to hand this vow down through, through time, through lifetimes, just as it was to us through the lineage, lifetime after lifetime. We chant the lineage, and that's a concrete representation of all the people, you know, old, young, stocky, skinny, healthy, unhealthy, crabby, jolly, who picked up this vow and handed it on not to let the Dharma die out. And look at the multiplying effect just in our little Sangha. We have two places now. People are amazed. Wow, you have two places. That's amazing. Look at Dharma Rain building a whole community for their, through their teacher's vow, through Jiu Kennett's vow passed on to them with all kinds of difficulties in their lives because of picking up that vow. The child abuse program was the result that I, where I worked was a, a result of people's vow to help reduce this, the unnecessary re-victimization of children who had been abused. And that was our prime vow. What is best for the child who's been abused and how can we prevent re-victimization? So we founded this program. And now there's one in almost every county in Oregon and people come and visit it who want to establish their own center. One of my friends went to L.A. because she, when we were doing this child abuse work and establishing our program, she went to L.A. to get ideas from child abuse programs in Los Angeles. And uh, she came back after a few days down there, and she gave me a sheet. She said, oh, this is a sheet of, about their principles of a child abuse program. And I looked at the sheet, and I thought, wow, that looks familiar. I looked at the bottom, and my name was at the bottom. <laughs> so... So we think of L.A., whoa, they know what they're doing, but they were actually <laughs> relying on some of what we had done, see? So vows multiply and spread in mysterious ways and ricochet back and forth. We, we never know. I wouldn't have known that if she hadn't handed me that sheet. We may be lucky enough to see how they multiply. We may not. We just put the money in this investment account and account and you know, we never look at it again. Or maybe, maybe somebody will say, wow, 
of your center grew to 100 centers. I don't know. It doesn't matter. This is why we do vows work, so that your life, all of our lives, will be fruitful and satisfying. So that your life, all our lives, will be fruitful and satisfying. And part of our vow has to be to continue to clarify. That's necessary. So our vows can change. They, They have to change because we change. Life changes. Life circumstances change. So vows are alive. They're not a static thing you write down and and you put in trying to vows and you say, okay, that's it. Great. Made my vow. Don't have to worry about that again. Been to a vow session. Never have to come to a vows class or come to another vow session. I've taken care of that. No. <clears throat> we grow and the vows grow us. And the vows change. They're dynamic. As Hogan said, you know, if you look at vows and you, you, you know, most of the things that we look at as a vow are actually a means, a means to accomplish something which we might call deeper or higher. So let's say the vow is to become a counselor and to be a therapist in a certain, with a certain group of people. But that's just the means. Underneath that is the vow. So why do you want to become a counselor? Well, I want to help people who are drug addicts. Well, why do you want to help drug addicts? Well, my, fam- my mother was a drug addict and caused a lot of suffering in her life, and I don't want other families to go through that suffering. Okay, so you would like to relieve human suffering? Yeah. Okay, well, that's your deeper vow. The means matter. The means are unique to our life. So we have to include the means in the vow. Otherwise, every vow ends up with the bodhisattva vow. If you really look at it, you really trace every vow down, it ends up with, oh, I'd like to help relieve human suffering. Great. So we all have the same vow, in a way. So we have to have the vow, and then the means. Well, I'd like to help save the earth from destruction, because that will cause a lot of human suffering, or pollution, or i like to provide medicine to people in Africa who have no treatment for HIV. It doesn't matter. The means are unique to you and arise out of your particular personality, skills, talents, inclinations, and personal history. That's where our personal history and the suffering that we've experienced come together and fuel the vow. So we could say, oh, it's all the bodhisattva vow, even the vow to get enlightened. So you have what we call mini vows, every time you come in the zendo to sit and practice and to stay on the cushion. And even when you feel like leaping up and running out screaming, you stay on the cushion. That's a mini vow. Why? Because you want to awaken. And why do you want to awaken? To relieve your own suffering, but also to relieve, you, you have an understanding that that will relieve the suffering of people around you. So really, we do our vows work, making the vow, framing the vow, and carrying the vow out because we want to help other people. And we want to get enlightened to benefit ourselves, of course, but actually because we're, we're puzzled about what can we do in this world. It's so confusing. It's so complex. 
Look at the refugee situation in Europe. Hundreds of thousands of people pouring into Europe who have no understanding of the culture. And they get angry and upset, and they attack people. It's not surprising, but what do you do about it? What does Germany do about hundreds of thousands of people who have no understanding of the culture? who come in poor, destitute, hoping that their lives will be transformed, and then they aren't transformed in a day, a week, a month, a year. These problems seem insoluble. How do we turn around the destruction of the earth? So we have to keep practicing, because we know we have to be clearer. We know we have to become wiser. We know we have to become more compassionate. Otherwise, we get angry in our compassion work. That's not so good. So practice, becoming clear, becoming awakened, becoming enlightened, is absolutely essential to whatever vow we take up. So that has to be our first or second vow. In the Tibetan tradition, I was in a particular teaching, I was taught this chant, which I do every morning during session, during sitting. Which essentially says, because of the suffering in the world, we vow, I vow, to become awakened. Because there is suffering in the world, I vow to become awakened. So I'll know how to use my life. And how to keep on clarifying my vow so that it provides clearer benefit, cleaner benefit. So this is why we keep pestering you to practice, even in session, right? In the morning, I do these guided meditations, which is a way of pestering you to practice, keep encouraging you to unhook from your thoughts. I had a wonderful teaching on Thursday night by a teacher who uses the word unhook. He says, thoughts are not the problem. Thoughts are not the problem. The problem is the thoughts about the thoughts. It's very interesting. hmm? So we think, oh, yesterday I thought that. Was that the right thing to think? Yesterday I thought I'd do this, but maybe that wasn't the right thing. Maybe I should. And so, or last year, I, or when I was little, I thought this, but now I'm. So it's the thoughts about the thoughts that create what we call the tangle of thoughts, the confusion of thoughts, that create the sense of self. A confused and tangled sense of self. So his teaching was unhook. So let the thoughts, you know, they're up here. Let them go. But unhook from them. And bring your awareness to other things, like your jaw, or your nose, or your, the bottom of your left foot. Or unhook from problems. Hmm? I gave you a little bit of his teaching this morning. Unhook from the notion of problems. So let's do that for a, for a moment. So be aware of the, the buzz, the, he calls it the mini-me. We locate in our head the thoughts and the thoughts about thoughts and the thoughts about the thoughts about the thoughts and my predicament and my problems and problems with the world, blah, 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 blah. 
So just let them be. Just unhook from them. Unhook awareness from them, as you've practiced many times, and bring your awareness to your big toe on your right foot. Sensations in the big toe on your right foot. Okay, now in the same way, ask this question, unhooking your awareness from the idea of problems. And asking the question, if there were no problems, if there were no problems, then how would it be? And look around inside your being. How would it be inside your being or in your awareness of the world if there were no problems? What is your experience if you direct your awareness to other people? If there are no problems, how do you experience them? problems, how do you experience this being you call me? If you open your awareness to no problems, How big is that awareness, and how do you see time? So this is a glimpse of awakened awareness. This is a glimpse of awakened awareness. And our practice is to keep on opening those doors into awakened awareness so that we can live our life in the relative world. Our vows operate in both realms, in the realm of awakened awareness, in the realm of no problems, in the realm of spaciousness, a kindly regard, everything that we're aware of. And our vows work in the, in the realm of the relative, through our little bodies and our incomplete understanding. But to carry out our vow, we have to move. We have to learn to move and have these two work together in an integrated way. This is why we keep pestering you to practice. 
awakened awareness. From that awareness, vows naturally arise and your life becomes fruitful and satisfying. From that awareness, you become just like your hands when you watched them when you were eating. When you pull into awareness and let your hands take care of you as they know how to do, your life becomes more and more like that where you just move and talk or don't talk and act or don't act naturally, taking care of what needs to be taken care of and resting, relaxing when you don't. You will have moments when you watch yourself do something that surprises you naturally and this world of distress will benefit. You can't ask how much the world will benefit. Maybe it's a little, but when that little joins many other littles, millions of other littles, there are big results. So I repeat what Hogan says over and over, have faith, have confidence. Your life matters. Your life energy channeled through clear vows can matter much more than you will ever, ever know. Uchiyama Roshi said, ordinary people are guided by their deluded thoughts, but bodhisattvas are guided by their vows. So please, use your vows as an internal GPS system and ask for help in carrying them out. Thank you.